you have to be looking forward toward these, you know, new occurrences and not backwards at the old way businesses work. To have a more ideal future, we can't go backwards. We can't do what we've done in the past. We have right. to reformulate. We have to have a new perspective and we have to have a different intention going forward. Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive into today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide the seven habits of highly transformative leaders at chriscolbert.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all the Insert Human listeners around the world. Thank you for joining us yet again. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to just ramble for two seconds about some observations about the world and why today's guest is such a salient, appropriate, relevant guest to have on the show. I think you, most of you would agree to me that if we were doing a word cloud on the world today, the human word would be a big word. I think consciousness would be a big word. Uh, in some circles, morality would be a big word, probably should be a bigger word. The question of truth, the question of integrity, and the question of ethics. And with that, the role of the corporation in providing more leadership, more guidance, uh, taking more responsibility for ensuring that our society is a healthy, moral, and just society. So with that as context, when I came upon Professor Wade Chumney, today's guest, I thought, Wade, you have to be on my show. Wade is the professor of business ethics and law at the California State University. And I think as importantly, the recent author of a book titled Conscious Business Ethics, which when I saw the title, I thought that is something we must talk about. So let's start there, Wade. Well, thank, firstly, thank you for being on the show and good to see you again. Yes. Great seeing you again. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just start with this sort of simple softball question. What is the book all about and why'd you write it? <laughs> well, I know great it's a question. big question, but let her, let her rip. Yeah. Yeah. So the book is called Conscious Business Ethics before the colon. After the colon is called The Practical Guide to Wisdom. So it's an attempt to try to teach people how to get toward this place of being more wise. And in doing so, I've been teaching this to uh, my students for several years, developing it. 
and really had an impact on many students who said it changed their lives, had them in a totally different trajectory. And that's really rewarding. Um, and a publisher approached me, asked me to write about this. And so now I'm introducing these concepts, these approaches to a broader audience so people can see um, outside of the classroom, you know, what, what is ethics? How does it work? How do I do it? And why is it, why should I do it? All those questions get answered because it's good for you and it's good for the rest of the world um, to do these things. So I just analyze historical perspectives and show how they're all saying the same thing about how to get there and then try to give you a little push to uh, make that happen. So, so break it down for me, the word conscious, the word business, and the word ethics. I'm, th- I'm seeing a triangle in my brain. And in the center of that triangle, I'm seeing wisdom. Because I think some people would see those component parts and go, well, how does that sort of all relate to wisdom? Like, what, what exactly is going on there? Yeah, so that's great. So to go back to the very beginning of the story, it's Plato. I mean, Plato wrote the allegory of the cave. You know, it's probably one of the most brilliant writings in the Western tradition. And um, he explains, you know, this is the nature of education. This story is about what you should focus your life on if you want to have an ideal life experience. And after digging into what he had to say, I started to realize, you know, I'm a business professor uh, of ethics and I'm trying to teach people how to put these things into practice. I started to realize that the message that Plato had about virtue ethics was actually the exact same message that positive psychology and Kohlberg have about moral development and character strengths. And the same message that Russell Akoff had about systems thinking, which is how you view the world. So you've got these three perspectives. You've got yourself, business and ethics. And business is how you is a context that you operate in out in the world. There's many other contexts, your personal life, anything else that goes on in your life is just one context. So business ethics is simply one component of your life. Ethics is how you choose to live your life. I mean, there couldn't be a more fundamental topic in my mind for anyone to pay attention to. So is, ethics let me interject there. Is that the, the, the sort of textbook definition of ethics? Um, how you choose to live your life is the definition that I've kind of adopted. There's a few different definitions out there. Um, some people look at it as a moral code, like guidance right. for actions to take. To me, that's improper in that you're placing it outside of yourself. It has to be something, it's a choice. And I think when I'm teaching the students, once students start to realize I have a choice, <laughs> it's not just you interacting in the business world, there's an, a you there. And that's the third part of the triangle. There's rarely do people talk about the you that's actually engaging in business ethics, <laughs> you know, and there, you have components, you have a mind, you have a heart, you know, you have your senses of your body and you can do things with those to make them more ideal so that your interaction with the business world or any other context is more ideal. And that's what Plato was getting at. That's what positive psychology is getting at. That's what systems thinking is getting at. And it's really interesting to see that they all converge toward a center point of balance and harmony in these different phases, which is the same thing other wisdom traditions talk about in the world. So it begs the question, when Plato was talking about an ideal life experience, what is ideal? I mean, this is one of my things is what, what are we after? You know, what is the intention of a life? What is the intention of a society? What is the intention of our species? What are we after? So as you contemplated that ideal life experience as an outcome, what does that mean? What do you write about in the book? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So in terms of an ideal life experience, it's a flourishing life. It's one where you're able to grow, to develop, to experience. The three transcendentals is what Plato would say, truth, beauty, and goodness. And to get higher toward those ideals and your experiences are what life is about, to have a better life experience and then share that with others so that they can experience the same thing. But um, the more people that do that, the more better outcomes you're going to have for society as a whole. And, uh, you know, your guest in the past, Richard Barrett, talks about these same developmental stages and steps to go through. And it's cited in all types of scientific studies out there. And I think what we as human beings need to do is just realize like, wow, there's this plethora of information out there. They're all saying the same thing that I should develop myself to get to this place where I'm flourishing and helping others flourish. And I'm going to enjoy the experience of life better if I do so. And so are those around me. So ethics is about making that choice. You know, back in the past, philosophers, you know, they lived the life of philosophy. They chose to have a good life. And that was at the fundamental core of every decision they made. Nowadays with ethics, people think of it as like restrictions or guidance on the actions that I take. That's not the true core of what ethics is about. It's about you fundamentally choosing to engage life in a more ideal way so that you have a better life experience. You know, this is prompting for me, um, a word that's been used a lot lately, increasingly, well, increasingly used over the last five or 10 years from my observation is this idea of agency, that a life is within your grasp. A life is a selection of choices that, you know, you can choose to go to seek a flourishing life or you can choose not to. And so that's, I guess your definition of ethics is kind of sort of part of that, right? Which is there are a bunch of choices in here for me. To realize, is that is that fair to say that this agency thing is part of the equation? Because I think a lot of people live their life as this life is done to them. Right. Yeah. And that's why this flourishing life that's, again, sought in various different wisdom traditions is something that's attainable. It's not difficult. It's a simple decision at its core. Then you have to follow through with the steps and the actions and the intentions and where you focus your attention to make that a reality. But the choice is one that very, not that many people make. They're just society and culture and the norms tend to focus our attention towards certain things, you know, fame, fortune. Those are the typical, um, you know, coin of the realm for most people, but that's, you know, fleeting. It's changing. All of life is changing. So you have to make a choice to develop and grow beyond those and see that there's other things of value. You know, there's what's valuable to you is going to guide what your actions are, where you focus your attention, what you intend toward. Um, And all those things, once you value truly valuable things, you know, Plato said something to the effect of, you know, all the wealth in the world is not worth as much as the virtues <laughs> as applying these six virtues I talk about in my book. That's how he's not, you know, just saying that to be, you know, he's being true when he says those things and that realization, if you truly realize that and put it into practice, now you can experience it and you can see what he was talking about and why he would say such a thing. Whereas the vast majority of society would be like, that's just crazy. <laughs> that's insane. You know, it's funny. I mean, I said to someone the other day, I think we have all the information we need. My, and my, my point to that was the wisdom of the ages, you know, the stuff from Plato and beyond. Yes. Um, all the sort of classic 
adages and idioms and you can lead a horse to water, but you, you know, all the wisdom is still true. It's still valid. So I don't think the issue is, is necessarily finding more wisdom. It's applying the wisdom that already exists. I don't know if that you'd agree with that. Yes, I think you're exactly right. I think what my book attempts to do is to translate Plato into modern times. You know, he has this cave allegory where someone's watching shadows and then turns around, blinded by firelight, and sees that these objects are being carried by people that create the shadows. And then they get out of the cave and they see sunlight or blinded by that. You know, that was experientially relevant to people back in Plato's time. Today, you've got to translate that. You've got to be able to explain it in different terms so that people understand, well, what are these levels that Plato is talking about? What type of progression do you make? And again, he was the originator of this. You know, philosophy is the core source of science as it later developed. Um, systems thinking developed later out of philosophy, as did positive psychology and, and Kohlberg's moral development. Philosophy is the foundation. And people have been answering the same question since that time human nature hasn't changed you know what do you want out of life why do you take any action you want and ultimately people say it's because i want to be happy i want to enjoy my life that's why i go to school you know why am i sitting in a classroom if you ask people why they'll trace it back to get a degree to get a job to get money you know to provide for my family ultimately to have a happy life experience right that's the same thing they said back in plato's time so mm -hmm. that's why not all the wisdom is still valid <laughs> because our human nature is the same and it's about figuring out how to relay it to people in such a way that it becomes relevant to them and they're willing to engage in the choices necessary to experience that type of more ideal life you mentioned the I don't know if there are virtues, truth, beauty, and goodness. Are those, are those those three of the six virtues? Those are the transcendentals that Plato says are kind of the highest form that you can head for. And then and, are the six virtues sort of underneath that? I don't, I don't mean yeah, that. Yes. Yeah. I would say that the way I explain it in my book, the six virtues are what Plato put out four initially, he kind of included the other two, not directly. And then positive psychology adopted these six, which they picked out of various wisdom traditions, including Plato and, you know, Eastern traditions and things like that. These six virtues that all they are, are ideal operations of different components of your life. They're the ideal way to operate within the system you find yourself. Can you give us some example? Absolutely. So there's six virtues. I mean, that's the thing is like, you can almost fit them all in one hand, right? These are the six things that if you do, you are guaranteed um, pursuant to Plato to have a happy, flourishing life. Um, and those are the first is moderation. And with that, you deal with your no, body. No way. We can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is America. <laughs> You've got to moderate your fears and your desires. Those are kind of the two key components. Um, fear pulls you away from stuff. Desires pull you toward. But you have to moderate those. You have to have balance, harmony. I mean, that's the whole key to what they're talking about. Well, These again, it's an adage, everything in moderation, you know, like, okay. Yes, yeah, like, duh, okay. Just true to what you said. Right. You know, and that's just one example. There's also justice, which is on the exterior realm, which is balanced fairness, you know, equality in the in your actions and your reactions that you take in. You know, those are two of the six and, and they go on from there to wisdom, courage, transcendence, humanity. You know, these are the keys, Plato would say, to have a happy, flourishing life. This is what you that undergirds the system of your life. These are the undergirding principles that are natural in their um, creation. And if you align with them, you start to flow with nature. You know, you, the, what Stoics talked about, um, a later philosophical tradition. 
Okay, so what I'm attempting to do in my head is you've got this troika of Plato's teaching, positive psychology, and systems thinking. And I, I'm a big fan of systems thinking. Don't yes. know much about positive psychology, although I do try to be positive. And then I know a little bit about Plato. So I'm getting a sort of picture of the Plato piece of the equation. Dig into po the positive psychology part, if you would, for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you think of this as a triangle, as I illustrate in the book, you've got yourself, you on the left hand side, and that's governed by the science of psychology on the and which I'll go into in just a second. On the exterior side, you've got systems thinking, which is everything is a system. Me and you are government, you know, the country, our world, the, the internal revenue service. Yeah. It's all part of a system and we're engaged in larger systems. And then the interaction between those is philosophy. That's how you choose to interact with the system you find yourself in. So you're asking Hold on about, a second. That's a big, so you're the psychology of us, the science of psychology within us yes, and the systems that surround us that define our life, Correct. how we choose to interact with them is philosophy. Is our That's philosophy? The way I would see philosophy as how you choose to live your yeah, life. Yeah. How do you choose to interact with your external context and your internal perspective? That's the key to life. I mean, right. your perspective determines where you're coming from. Well, you can use your reasoning mind to develop that. And this is on the psychological side with positive psychology. And if I can just give a, a real quick rundown. Uh, yeah, on yeah, yeah, we got time. Yeah. So, you know, psychology historically studied deviant people, people that had problems and they tried to get them from, you know, anywhere from negative one to negative 10, tried to get them back up to zero to normal. Well, positive psychology came along, you know, Seligman, when he became president of the APA and said, let's uh, change this. Let's focus on the plus 10 people and figure out how do we get these zeros, normal people to get up there. Mm -hmm. And that was their whole approach. And it's, when it's, was that? That was in the 80s, I believe, when he came along. Mm -hmm. um, Kohlberg, though, did research on stages of moral development prior to that. You know, there were precursors to, obviously, positive psychology coming out. But this fundamentally revolutionized the way you look at your mind and your body and your heart, how they interact, because you're starting to see how you can head toward an ideal. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what you want. Well, that's the same thing. You know, philosophically speaking, Plato was heading toward an ideal, the good, the true, the beautiful, those transcendentals. Those are three different perspectives of the most ideal, the source of all things, he would say. And then systems thinking, which well, before is, you go there, does oh, go ahead, positive yes. psychology have a, a similar destination in mind? In, in other words, is it a means to a specific end or is it simply it's a preferred means or a recommended? You know what I mean? Yes. Positive, yes, positive psychology is intending toward a flourishing life. That's the whole intention behind it, how to help you achieve a happier, joyous, more enjoyable life experience. And to do that, they said there's six virtues. They call them six character strengths. The same four virtues that Plato gave us nearly 2,500 years ago, moderation, courage, wisdom, and justice. And then they added two more, humanity and transcendence. Arguably, Plato talked about both of those as well, but they operationalized these six virtues and said, this is what these are the character strengths you need to develop in order to have a happy, flourishing life. That work has been imported into the business realm with positive organizational studies. I just got back from a conference at Michigan a few weeks ago. Um, University of Michigan is kind of the center point of this research, but they're putting positive psychology into organizations so that you can help human beings flourish and make more money as a result of doing the right thing. You know, this is the stuff that's trickling into 
our modern context of how businesses operate. You have to be looking forward toward these, you know, new occurrences and not backwards at the old way businesses work. Um, the to have a more ideal future, we can't go backwards. We can't do what we've done in the past. We have right. to reformulate. We have to have a new perspective, and we have to have a different intention going forward. Can you give me an example of how organizations are manifesting the this positive psychology approach? You know, because that's the question you always get. Like, I, you know, I understand the theory; it makes perfect sense. But I run a company of three hundred people. What do I do? Like, what exactly do, how I do to, a, how do I deploy this? How do I realize the benefit of it, et cetera? So how's, how's it being adopted at a, call it tactical level by companies? That's a great question. And that's, um, you know, there's conscious capitalism is something that's been out. I don't know if you've heard about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. From Whole Foods and Sosodi, you know, there's different versions of this that come out in different ways, different perspectives on the same concept. But what a business does that chooses to operate from this place is they, they center their core fundamental approach toward humanity, right? Toward you, what you're always talking about, toward insert humans. Focus on the well-being of the human beings under your care. And when you under do- your care, that's a big statement. Whatever word you want to use, (laughs) but you know, you owe responsibility to these people, right? They're coming to your organizations are groups of people, me and you, every organization is just people. So everything is a human being. So once you focus on them and their well-being, it's not surprising. Your business starts to flourish. You have people willing to go the extra mile. You have people that care about you and your company because you care about them. <laughs> Reciprocity works. You know, it's it's not rocket science, but it's a it's a different way of thinking from the industrial age and the past and how people were viewed as cogs in a machine and more um, analytical type of thinking, breaking things apart versus more, a more synthetic synthesis type of thinking where you see parts of a whole system that's part of a larger system. And you try to do the most ideal interactions to make it function as ideally as possible. There's so many, I have so many thoughts spinning in my head about this. I, it's funny. I, yeah, the other day, a friend of mine, on a guy I know, him, uh, I know him, and then he's also on LinkedIn. And he, he sent out a note asking people what the measure of a corporation was. Mm-hmm. And my, and he asked me specifically, and my response was love and consequence. And I said, I think the responsibility of a corporation is to in, imbue love among its all of its stakeholders, its employees, its customers, its supporters, its investors, uh, the community it serves, the extended community it serves called the world. Like it's to be loved by meeting people where they are and helping them realize their full potential. And that's the consequence side that a job is can't just be a job. Right. It, it, and it kind of goes back to this idea of flourishing. Like our job is to help one another flourish, to realize one's full potential. Yes. Not purely through or simply through the lens of function, but through the lens of whole humanness. And I right. believe, I believe, which is, you know, kind of maybe crazy is that companies, you and I have that responsibility to each other and corporations have that responsibility to the, the people they serve. Like it's yeah. no different. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, (laughs) at different levels, systemic levels, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. All the same thing within us, within organizations, within governments. It's the same thing. So once you figure that out and what to focus on and what's of value, it'll transform you personally, transform organizations. You know, it it can transform a whole lot of stuff, but you have to get the right mindsets in place. And the um, what you talk about is that love 
aspect, you know, Plato talks about love, um, love of beauty, you know, and, and this ideal toward which you head. And, um, you know, love is in the model that I've developed, you know, the probably the premier emotion that you could engender, right? Yeah. Love, love of other, and, and, and think about this when you're in love in life, don't you feel more energetic? Don't oh, yeah. you feel happier? Aren't you a different, fundamentally different creature than you are when you're fear-based? I mean, those are kind of the two poles. There's lots in between. But if you're operating from fear, it's a totally different life experience. It's a choice to operate on the fundamental basis of love and caring and doing the right thing. And if you do, you experience a completely different life. Um, and that's what Plato is trying to teach. Yeah. I, I've, I've written and, and, and spoken about this idea of love as the source code of freedom, that, that when you find love within and you find love without, and they have to go in that sequence, because I really don't believe you can love another unless you love yourself first, but you're right. ultimately free. And then yeah. that unleashes all your powers, all your capacities. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's a very insightful and you have to develop yourself to get to that point. You don't just wake up and I'm love, you yeah, know, right, right. Oh yeah. yeah. Work through Many things years. you Many develop years. and you know what you, you don't know what you don't know. There are things in life you've never encountered. You don't even know any, you don't even know they exist. How could you even understand how to do them? So yeah. you have to work your way through these things to get to that point. Another thing I want to just I want to go back to the sort of positive psychology in, in the corporate world. And the, I don't think I told you this story. A couple of months back, I was asked to give a keynote in a, in a conference in my uh, Panama. And um, I started by asking everybody, and it was senior executives, and I asked everybody to stand up and turn around and introduce themselves to the stranger behind them. And so they begrudgingly did that. And after they turned back around and sat down, I said, you just exhibited or you just experienced the two forces at work in the transformation of anything. And the one is the force of fear, because when I said, you're going to now introduce yourself to a stranger, most of you probably felt fear. And then the force of possibility, which is once you introduce yourself to the stranger, you realize that human could become a friend, could become a resource, could become a customer, that there was, there was possibility, there was upside to the stranger becoming no longer a stranger. And I proceeded to talk about corporate transformation through this lens of fear and possibility. And I said, my view is too many corporations, particularly those that have been around for a while, are dominated by fear, that the ratio is out of whack. It's mostly fear with a little bit of possibility. And yes. if you want to realize the full potential of a company or the full potential of a life, you got to flip the ratio. I'm not saying completely get rid of fear because I'm not sure that's possible for most of us. But I do think finding a way to the dominant force of possibility, which is a, I think, a cousin of love. Yes. They're kind of the same idea. Yes. Yeah. This all sort of, for me, I'm bringing it up because the positive psychology thing is like a positive possibility thing is yes. making that the sort of the dominant force ethos of the entity corporate or otherwise. Yes. You know, I don't know if that makes sense to you or. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole point of, of this is to realize your potential, that there's greater possibilities out there for you. And fear constricts, fear keeps you down. Fear does not allow you to grow, develop, learn. It doesn't do any of those things. It keeps you stuck in a similar pattern, an instinctual pattern that you don't break out of. Love, possibility, you know, and words are just miniature metaphors for meaning, right? I mean, there's meaning behind these words that we're using with each other. 
but a lot of them trace to a very similar core, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so in my book, I try to use a certain set of words to explain very complicated concepts in a way that's understandable, that's relatable. And, um, you know, that understanding a pole of fear to possibility is just such a thing that allows you to realize that you want to be heading in this direction, not that one, you know, yeah. and, and then move toward it. You know, the idea that you just broke or put on the table, which is like, maybe everything, everything extends from these really core human truths that Plato, probably among many of the philosophers captured best, relates to when I was, I was also, I think I told you I was in Cairo a couple of weeks ago and just marveling at the country and the, and the diversity of people. And I just met so many people who spoke so many different languages. And luckily most of them also spoke English. But I was marveling at this idea of, you know, if we have 160 countries and I don't know how many languages or dialects there are in the world, but many more than 160, but how similar the concepts are, you know, right. like, right. like yeah. every group has arrived at love. Every group has arrived at fear. Right. Yes. You know, and think about that. Like, why is that the case? Because human nature is the same. Yes, we have different dialects and grow up in different ways, but fundamentally we're the same creature, right? I mean, right. we have the same components I've put in my book are the same in everyone. You know, they're all there and you can work. Everyone has the ability to work on those to make it more ideal. Yeah, um, right. But that, you know, the realization that we're all have those fundamental similarities. Those are the kind of the ideas Plato would talk about that exist independent of us in a sense, and that we bring them out like numbers, for instance, you know, mathematicians talk about numbers. They're not discovering numbers. Some hold that view, but most are like, I'm, we're not creating numbers. We are discovering them. Those mm -hmm. are things that are exist independent of us, but we're pulling them out and, and figuring out how they work together. Plato would say the same thing happens with ideas, with virtues. Um, these are things that are in existence and we're drawing, we're aligning with them in order to have a more um, ideal life experience. Mm. So tell me about the third piece of the equation, the systems thinking part and a, what that is for the, for the listenership, like that some people may not be totally familiar with it. And then ultimately like I'd love to love to have you explain the call it the Venn diagram of where the overlap source really starts happening in these three areas. Yeah, that's great. So to focus on systems thinking, you know, this is something Russell Acoff developed and Peter Singe at MIT. You know, this is a way of viewing the world. It's a philosophy and it's a way of realizing that everything is part of a system and systems are synergistic. They create greater outputs than the component parts that make them. And what Acoff talked about and what I adopt in the text are these stages of development to understanding how systems function. At the first level, you have just objects, just plain external objects out there independent of anything. Then the next step, phase two, is a relationship between you and those objects. Now you've got some connective tissue there, something that you relate to in terms of that object. Third step is to go to patterns. There's these patterns that these relationships develop that you can see repeated over time. And at the fourth stage is I kind of term it the systems level where you start to see all these pieces working together in these patterns. And that's where most people would stop at level four. Well, here's the system, but Acoff, and if you think about it, so that the wisdom visions went further and said, well, those systems operate on the basis of principles. There's a fifth level behind the, the system called the principles of the ideas upon which, you know, these things function. And then beyond those principles, there's the law from which it originates. Um, and that would be, you know, in terms of 
the source, uh, the fundamental operating principle from which all systems, you know, emerge. Mm-hmm. So there's these levels of learning that you go up, you know, and that's systems thinking. That's the realization that everything's a system. And once you do that, you start to see it everywhere. And it helps you understand the interdependent nature of all things, which is at the highest level is this interdependence. Well, that systems thinking is exactly the same thing that Plato talked about with the seven stages of getting out of the cave. It's exactly the same thing that Kohlberg talked about the you know, prior to positive psychology, developing the six character traits of these seven stages of moral development that you work through at the highest level is interconnectedness. It's life, it's unity. It's this interconnected life energy that flows out and evolves over time out there in the world, Mm -hmm. you know, causes us to evolve independently. Um, But that's what's at the core of it. And then you are trying to align yourself with the principles that it operates on so that you function in accordance with it. And therefore you have a smoother, you know, more ideal life experience. And is that, does that system design component, is that reflected in the practical guide part of the book? In other words, the reader of the book is, are they given a sort of systems approach to realizing wisdom, to realizing a flourishing life? Yes. Yes. So what happens is that In the text, I amalgamate, I bring together these three different views, you know, on one side, you've got the systems thinking we just talked about, which also correlates to a ethical theory known known as utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number. It's where you measure the consequences of an action. That same development on the system side correlates to the same development on the psychological side, which is, you know, psychology is the science is also the normative theory known as deontology, which focuses on your actions and your intentions, you know, as a human being, those are two things that you output. And then you've got on the third leg of the triangle philosophy and Plato and his ladder of love, you know, getting up to this beautiful state at the higher levels, getting out of the cave and seeing true beauty. Right. I mean, and that's the beautiful side. The true side is systems thinking. And then the good side is you, you know, your perspective, you know, in the world, there's only you, the perceiver, your perception and what you perceive, perceiver, perception, perceived. I call those things, your perspective, you're the the perceiver, your perception, the film that mediates between you and the world and your context, you know, what you perceive out there. And those are the three components that kind of form the foundation for each of these three different perspectives that I've tried to put together into a system. And you ask about practical application. Yes, I think that's the intention is to show you that the simplistic nature of how these things all align, that wisdom traditions are trying to get you to self-develop, to work on yourself, to get to a more ideal state, and then show you the different schools of thought and how they achieve that. Most pertinent to, to individuals are probably positive psychology that you keep um, asking about. You know, that's kind of the core research that studies human beings and how they can achieve um, this type of human flourishing. Earlier, before we hit the record button, we were talking about motivation. And I think the first time we chatted, we talked about motivation and how, how do you move people to do things differently, to behave differently, to think differently, to adopt new practices? I mean, you and I both have personal stories of change, you know, what motivated us uh, at, a different, at different times in our life to do things differently. Right. Is the positive psychology piece where the motivation lies or, you know, like, yeah. 
I don't know if that's the right question. Do you understand my no, question? No, I understand what you're saying. So human beings, we, the reason we take any action or do anything is because of what we value. You know, what do we value? What do we need at a certain point in time? That's going to dictate our intentions and our attention, where we focus that, which ultimately leads to our actions. So you have to start to fundamentally value different things, make different choices. Well, why would you value something different than fame or fortune, which is again, the norm. And that's why it's so easy. It's the normal course in society where we find ourselves. Now. Or if I can just interject, I think there are a lot yeah. of people that value safety. Yes. The, Same, the, yeah. the, the status quo appears to be safe and comfortable and certainly familiar. Therefore I'm locking yes. into that. And I, I'm not even that motivated by fame or fortune. I just, I just want to know, that I have a, a roof, you know, it's Maslow's first couple levels yes. of need roof, yeah. you know, shelter, food, water, safety, belonging, and that's it. So yes. pulling, you know, moving beyond that, I think is maybe for some, not, I don't know, appealing. Right. I mean, you know, when you talk about safety, it's, it's founded in fear, you know, that into the pole, because you have to survive. That's the fundamental need that needs to be, you know, that's what you value, right? Maslow's right. hierarchy correlates to Kohlberg's stages. You know, all this stuff is. It's all, it's all like permutations on the same thing. Yes, right? It really yeah. is. And that's part of my attempt is to simplify it and show people why it's all saying the same thing so that you can buy in and get to say, well, these are wisdom traditions. You know, these aren't just, you know, my friend telling me what to do. These are brilliant people throughout history that have changed the course, you know, of, of many things, you know? And so if you realize that, hopefully you start to value, it has to be a personal change. We could have a different system in place. You know, our system isn't as currently constructed, isn't in such a way that it's going to promote those values. You know, um, it's something that has to be kind of an individual choice. Certain organizations can promote them, but on a large scale, it would take a different approach in the system, but you can do that individually at any point in your own life. You can reap the benefits yourself and spread those to others. And then organizations that you create or are a part of can experience that as well. But it's about making that conscious choice and the way I try to do it is to just to show you what's been said historically and what the benefits are. Look at, you know, you can actually flourish as a human being if you choose to pursue these things. Um, and it's not just me talking. I, I try to bring in the heavyweight experts who, who said this was the case. You mentioned uh, Richard Barrett a few minutes ago. And um, for the listeners on the show who are regular listeners, you heard me. Uh, Richard's been on the show at least a couple of times over the last uh, year and a half or so. Uh, wonderful, wonderful guy, very thoughtful. And uh, I think a lot of what he has to say is very similar to what you're saying in a, in a really good way. One of the things that Richard has done over the, his career is, is look at a lot of this through a country uh, lens, that certain countries have different level or at different levels of consciousness. Yes. And my, my, my question to you is in your, your research and your work, have you looked at it through that lens too? And if not, that's fine. I'm just, I'm just curious to know if, if you've considered the American sort of state relative to a flourishing life versus the, you know, Danish uh, <laughs> approach. Yes. And, and Richard Barrett is absolutely on target. He knows exactly what's going on and he's had the experience and, and brought that forward. And, uh, you know, very wise individual. And in terms of my work, I'm a professor of business ethics. I was teaching this stuff over the years. And I started to, you know, once I really 
you know, it hits you after a while. This is about how to live your life. This isn't just a little segment in the business curriculum. Then I started to realize, well, there's a lot of value here. How do I bring that to the table? So my focus, you know, I created a business ethics minor at, at my university. And my focus has been on changing individuals and their approach to life. And I haven't done the larger, you know, Richard worked at the UN and did all, you know, all kinds of stuff in that regard. And I've been more on an individual level trying to get you know, people at an age mm -hmm. when to go out into the world, change that trajectory, you know, make the impact here so that they can reap the benefits for decades and ripple that benefit out to anyone they interact with. You know, I have my um, students in each class write a paper where they're culminating everything I've taught them inside of a business context where they currently or have worked so that they can actually practically demonstrate the changes that take place. Hmm. You know, that's the whole key to my approach is practical implementation. So Richard's looking at the, you know, at the like macro level, worldview. Macro, right, right. And he's, he also looks at the personal level, you know, clearly with his uh, stages, but I've been focusing on how to reach individuals to kind of shake them a little bit because they don't come into my class with this type of expectation right. and get them to realize here's a different way of thinking about things that's going to benefit you if you're willing to listen and put it into practice and give it a shot. And the people that do, it's, it's phenomenally rewarding to hear the benefits that accrue from right. such approach. So that's a, a perfect wrap up for the conversation. Although I want to ask you one, I guess one other related question, describe for me who you think this book is for. Great. I think this book is for any human being that wants to experience a more ideal life. That would be the simplest way to put it. It's in the context of business ethics because businesses are made up of individual human beings and they have a great deal of power in today's society. So they can really make changes that are more dramatic than obviously an individual can. But any individual can put these practices into effect in their own lives realize the benefits, and then again, you know, send ripples out to others that can effectuate change in them as well. So it's not intended for any specific type of group. If you're a human being, the book's intended for you, because as in my teaching and my research, it's individual people that make the difference. And sure, if I could just speak to the CEOs of the S&P 500 and get all of those individuals to buy on, get on board, that would effectuate change probably more rapidly. But there's nothing wrong with you changing this in your own life and then seeing where it takes you from there, because it is a better life. It's available to you. And it's simply a matter of choice and applying your reasoning mind to head toward that type of goal, that type of ideal. Love it. Last, last question. How can people, I assume the book's available on Amazon? Yeah, yeah. The book's available everywhere um, that you want to check it out. You know, anywhere. You just look for Conscious Business Ethics, The Practical Guide to Wisdom. And also I have a website, wadechumney.com, where um, I'll put a little, um, the, my kind of symbol I've put together to amalgamate this wisdom and kind of some worksheets for you to work on, on uh, trying to accomplish that. And are you available for speaking for companies that might want you to come in and give them some uh, advice? Absolutely. So in addition to the individual aspect, I also consult businesses and talk about how to put these practices into approach into your corporate culture so that you can 
reap the benefits of these teachings, you know, from positive psychology to appreciative inquiry, which is another tremendous approach that I'm not sure if you're familiar with that really transforms businesses. But again, it's equally applicable to individuals. So this this work can go in either direction. And um, I'm happy to work with anyone who has a desire to change and wants to head toward a more ideal future. I do love, I mean, we have so many things in common or views in common. And, you know, I've said countless times to CEOs, your organization is simply a collection of human beings. And if you want the organization to grow, that means the human beings must grow. Growth doesn't come from the carpet or, or the, or the computers, you know, growth comes from the people. Right. So it's all the <laughs> same. Animate objects aren't the ones doing the magic. No, I don't think so. It's all human beings. And I mean, you are brilliant at this. You are focusing everyone's attention on the fact that human humanity has to come first. Trying. Yeah, you're doing a fantastic I'm job. Trying. I salute you to no end for that. Good. Yeah, so. but that approach of getting human beings, it's just look, you know, think about yourself, look at yourself in the mirror, right? The same experiences you have where you've got this complicated history and all this stuff. Guess what? Every single human being on the planet has the exact same thing. If you could really realize that and realize they're just as, they have consciousness at their core, just like you do, just as much complexity, just as much love, hope, fear, all those things. Maybe you'd relate differently to them. And if we all work together, you know, if you get an organization of human beings on the same page, heading in the same direction toward a more ideal future, it's a lot of things that can be accomplished if you head that way. Well, I, I, back to systems design, you know, I, I really believe everything is connected. Um, and, you know, Mother yeah. Nature is, I think, the, the poster child for that truth. Absolutely. And humans, for whatever reason, we have we have started to fight that construct and imply that everything is discrete, that we are disconnected, that, you know, America is different than Spain, which is different than whatever. And, but it's not true. We're all necessarily one. Absolutely. And that's, that is the highest level, level seven in all of these things is unity. You know, Plato gave a, a le- one public lecture, as far as I can tell in his career, and it was on the Nate, the good, just one, just one public wow. lecture. All the rest were in his academy and he came out and the public came and he and it was on the, le- what is good? What is the good? You know, he talks about attaining the good. And he said, the good is one, you know, all is one. <laughs> that was, he did some mathematical stuff. And then that was his quote, unity, interconnectedness, yeah. interdependence. That's the top level of systems thinking. That's the top level of Kohlberg's moral development, positive psychology. That's the top level of Plato's philosophy. You know, that realization once you realize that and operate on that principle, you act differently toward others. You engage the world in a different way because you realize we're all connected. We're all independent. We're all in this together. And you can make radical changes with that simple shift of a mindset. Speaking of radical, you know this. I haven't really officially announced this. I'm starting an organization called Human Revolution. And the whole idea is to aggregate all the people and all the organizations in the world that are pushing forward towards a more human first world. Um, And it captures everything you just said, you know, and you, my friend, are a revolutionary. And (laughs) I am grateful. I am grateful for the work that you're doing. I think the world should be grateful for the work that you're doing. And uh, I encourage everybody listening to uh, to buy Wade's book. So thank you for being on the show. And I'm also thankful that I'm pretty confident we'll be friends for the rest of our life. So I know we will. Absolutely. I'm so grateful to have met you and share, you know, this mindset and this approach and make the world a better place together. I'm completely on board with what you're doing. Amen. 
Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.